Hi, and welcome to Harvest Bible Chapel, Kuala Lumpur Online. We hope that the following message will be a blessing to you as you seek to walk with the Lord in spirit and in truth. For more information about our church, please visit www.harvestkl.org or click the link in the description below. Good morning. How are we doing today? Partially awake. We'll wait for the spirit to move, then I'll begin. I'm just kidding. All right. Well, we are going to continue in Isaiah. Uh, We'll cover a lot of ground this morning, but we'll do it maybe a little bit differently than normal in terms of going verse by verse. Uh, But first of all, I just want to welcome you and thank you for the opportunity to be before you today to bring the word. I also want to let you know that uh, Lee, who was here uh, preaching last week, he and his wife welcomed their first child into the world this week. And so they are right now enjoying time with their uh, healthy, beautiful baby boy. And so y'all can continue to pray for them as mom recovers and as their son uh, gets used to breathing KL air. So, uh, but yes, it's wonderful. And I think it's great that we are looking at Isaiah 9 today. Um, Very well-known passage in Christmas time. Now, I don't know how it is among Christians in KL, but one thing that is very controversial in the U.S. is listening to Christmas music in the summertime. Uh, We have those who love to do it and those who think it's forbidden until what we celebrate is Thanksgiving. Um, So we're going to have a little bit of Christmas uh, in the summer, so to speak. It's a very common passage, particularly uh, Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, a verse that many of you uh, will likely recognize. Um, But before that we get into this, um, I just want to open us up in prayer. Um, I know that we have uh, prayed corporately, but I think it's also good to pray Uh, together now as we prepare our hearts for the word. Uh, Let's pray. Father, your word is like milk that nourishes, giving life to our souls. It's like a lamp that lights our way, giving life uh, to this path of life that we walk. But your word is also powerful. It's like a double-edged sword that pierces, a hammer that shatters, a fire that consumes. But perhaps even more, it is a mirror that enables us to see who we truly are, a truer understanding of ourselves, than we will ever find looking within ourselves or to others around us. But best of all, Father, your word allows us to know you intimately. It gives us special revelation. We need to come to you through Christ so that we are no longer lost souls left to ourselves, but a redeemed people of God, members of your kingdom. Today, Father, give us a deeper knowledge and greater insight into your word, not so that our minds would be full, but so that our hearts will be led to worship as we see you more truly as you are and thus know how we ought to live in light of knowing you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's look at Isaiah 9, uh, 1 through 7. And then we're going to jump ahead. But for now, 9, 1 through 7. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. And the former time he brought into contempt or he humbled, in some translations it says, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. 
Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Here it is. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Such an encouraging passage. Um, should always be encouraging as we open this, as, it, as the world gets more and more chaotic, as we realize that what we thought could solve our problems cannot. I know we're tired of hearing of COVID, but the reality is it brought us to a point where we realized that modern medicine could not solve every problem. It humbled us. There's so many other examples that we could think of, but when we come back to this central truth, the reason why we gather today, it brings a calmness to our soul, a peace to our minds to know that there is a king who has died, who has resurrected and sits at the right hand of God. And his kingdom will reign forever. Now, this is a little bit uh, reminiscent ahead of a passage we are already aware of. Um, Luke 1, 26 to 33 says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. To a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And what did this angel say to her? He said, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. It's okay to respond. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom. There will be no end. Sounds a lot like what we just read, doesn't it? Only what we just read in Isaiah was written about 700 plus years prior. It's one of the wonderful, fascinating things about God's word is how it verifies itself through the fulfillment of truth. And you can go, you could say, well, maybe they wrote, maybe Luke uh, 1, uh, 26 to 33 happened and somebody went back and wrote Isaiah to try to trick us or fool us. But if you do any research, into the validity of the Bible, you'll quickly find out that's a very difficult claim to hold on to. So let's go back to uh, Isaiah 9, 1 through 2. What's the first word there, at least in the ESV? 
but the first word is but, or some may say nevertheless or something similar. I'm telling you, you could build a whole sermon series on that one word. But God raised him from the dead. But God, who is rich in mercy, but God who proves his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Just open up your Bible and search but God and you will find over and over and over again times where something was happening but God. Now today we won't specifically handle that phrase but God, but we will see what God had done in spite of what was ongoing. You can look at look right before 9-1 and see that this is referencing back uh, to what was taking place. Um, you see in verse 20, um, let's see, to the teaching and to the testimony, if they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry, and when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. And what comes next? I can wait. But, but there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. think about um, the reality here that was not not good and God was going to do something that only God could do right without taking the entire time to go through everything preceding this text we see over and over again whether it's the wilderness or rather something else that God's people continued to do what God had told them not to do correct had plenty of opportunities to follow them. In fact, they're wandering the wilderness after God did all these miracles to get them out of Egypt. And next thing we know, this gold cap is just popping out of the oven. And they're like, I don't know what happened. We just put this stuff in here. And then, you know, bing, we had a golden cow. The reality is, is the people just over and over and over and over again, their hearts would do the opposite of what God was calling them to do. And it just becomes more and more evident as and, and let me tell you, don't see this as just some uh, story of good teaching, as wisdom, as tidbits of ways to make your life better. See, this is one big story of what God is doing uh, from Genesis to Revelation. And we see this growing tension over time that every time we've got the law, the law, the law, and the people do not obey the law, the law, the law, the law. They couldn't. They couldn't do it. And God was going to do something wonderful. Um, that only he could do. And it became more and more evident as we read, right? Well, this reminds me of a story. Um, when I was in uh, Texas doing my master's, um, I chose to work at a restaurant nearby uh, to make a little money because as you all know, a student has to eat and a student has to sleep. And um, so I found this local restaurant um, that basically um, ate the bills, but it also provided a lot of opportunity to, to engage with people from all around as they would come into the restaurant to enjoy the free bread and the great seafood. Um, we had people from casual guests to players from the uh, local NFL team, the Dallas Cowboys, a team I never really came to love. Um, but on occasion, we would get these guests that you would never forget 
uh, on a humorous note, one time, I, I've never done this, but one time I uh, came up to the table after they were uh, getting into their food and I said, how is everything? And they're like, it's good. I was, and I've never done this. It's like, would you give it a thumb, one thumbs up or two thumbs up? You know, how good is it? And I promise you not, this guy pulled his hands up from behind the table who had no thumbs and held his hands up. <laughs> and I was like, I'm going to go check on your bread. Um, but you have some unusual moments like that. The guy was very friendly and very gracious with me. I've never asked that question again. Um, but I also had this one guest uh, who I recall initially coming up to his table and noticing the hat that he was wearing, this elderly gentleman. And it was, a, I don't know if you've seen the U.S. Navy hats that are kind of navy blue. It has usually the name of the ship that they were on and so forth. And I noticed across the hat, it said USS Indianapolis. Now, to most people, this probably would have passed their attention. Uh, they probably would have not thought much of it. Um, but for me, it did catch my attention. Um, and honestly, this is a story that I would have not come to know about had I not picked up the book in harm's way while I was in university. Um, and the reality is that based on everything I knew about the story of the USS Indianapolis and reading that, um, this man who was sitting at the table waiting for me to take his order should not have been alive. He should have not been there that day, but he was right in front of me. And so this caught my attention. attention. And even when I asked him about it, uh, his daughter who was with him was very surprised. I knew the story because it wasn't a very common one. Um, but in 1945, this man, among many others, had boarded the USS Indianapolis in San Francisco, uh, not knowing that this particular ship uh, had been directed to carry out a top secret mission uh, to carry the uranium and parts of the what would be the atom bomb that would be used on Japan to end the war with Japan. And at that time in July of 1944, except for maybe two army officers on the ship, this man, along with everyone else, even including the captain, were unaware of what was on this ship. Now, let me just pause there and say I get that there are a lot of thoughts and feelings when it comes to war, when it comes to weapons used in war. Um, and while that's a definite part of the narrative and conversation around the USS Indianapolis, um, it's not the center of the story I'm sharing with you today. Because um, the reality is that this ship and its commander would be put in harm's way to carry out a mission that most everyone else was completely unaware of. And because of this mission, the commander, they were going from San Francisco to the Pacific, and he was commanded to zigzag pretty much to go undetected all the way uh, to their destination. They would not have the same normal defensive fleet around them as you might normally have because this was a top secret mission. They didn't want to draw uh, unnecessary attention to it. And after making, they, they did arrive, as you history tells, and they made the delivery of these parts. Um, but upon return, the commander felt, hey, let's get home. And he decided to not follow orders and just go straight back. Um, and so as they headed back for several days, they had no issues. Um, however, one day, a Japanese submarine suddenly came into range and fired two torpedoes at this unprepared ship. And the damage was immediate and catastrophic. And within 12 minutes, this ship has fully had fully submerged. So at that moment, about 300 sailors had already died and left about 900 men floating in the ocean. Pretty bleak situation, huh? Now, those who survived were already in serious danger. 
Um, they weren't dressed, prepared for this. Most didn't even have life fest at this time. But they thought that they might be saved because they were able to get off an SOS right before the ship went down. Uh, however, the problem was that the Navy made several mistakes. One, uh, one of the guys, commanders, was simply drunk when the message came in. Another, the men had the commander had ordered the men not to bother him. The third, they actually took this SOS, had rescue ships sent out towards these men, probably about 14 hours into their trip on the water. They were called back as higher authorities said, call those ships back. This is an ambush. The Japanese have sent out a false SOS so that we'll send our people out there and they'll ambush them. And, and before we judge them, no one knew this ship was out there. It was a top secret um, mission at the time. But as a result of these mistakes, these men floated in the ocean. This man that sat there at the table in front of me, they floated in the ocean for days, suffering from dehydration, exhaustion. Uh, later, many uh, suffered saltwater poisoning um, from drinking the water. Um, sharks who have been following the ship for days as they dumped the food off the ship as they're traveling along. These sharks uh, began attacking the men. Some of them had mental breakdowns, um, attempting to drown themselves and others. The men struggled for four days before they were spotted by a passing plane and a rescue was mounted. By the time they arrived, the rescuers, only 316 men survived, including the captain. The reality is no matter how well these men had trained, no matter how many resources they had at their disposal, no matter how much money each man had in his bank account at home, no matter how strong he was, no matter how weak he was, they were maybe able to last a little bit longer on the water, but they were completely unable to rescue themselves. There was simply no way they could save themselves and the rescue had to come from outside themselves. The reality is a rescue did come. And the reality of that is that these men's lives were forever changed. This would be so much bound up in their identity. You imagine going through this situation, let alone the trauma that you're enduring for the rest of your life. In fact, the captain would later take his life. In spite of even the trauma, living through that and experiencing that and getting to go back and, and live your life and see your grandchildren, attend your church, do whatever it is, their lives were marked by that event. And church, I want to remind you that your lives are marked by an even greater rescue. We live in light of the history of what God has done the present of what he is doing, and the day that his return in which he is coming. So let's go back to this text. The people who are walking in darkness, without hope, desperate for a rescue. But to get even a little bit clearer picture of this, let's jump ahead um, to what we see in, um, in Isaiah 9. Um, but I'll tell you what, before we do jump there, I do want to point out one more thing. If you look in verse one uh, of Isaiah nine, you see this reference to Galilee. Um, you see the reference to Zebulun in the land of Naphtali. Uh, if you look at Matthew 4, 12 through 17, it says, now when the, he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee 
And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. Can you imagine floating out there in that ocean? And if you're even coherent enough to see the rescue coming, to see the light coming. These people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region in shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. What did we see in uh, Isaiah 8? said that there was no dawn, right? So this place, the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, that God had humbled would one day be the epicenter of the message of God's great gospel going out to the nations. The same gospel message that has us here today, worshiping the one true God. We should be encouraged by this church just because we're experiencing the difficult circumstances of life, whether it be simply because we live in a broken and fallen world affected by sin, or because we are in fact under the hand of the Lord who is disciplining us as children. We can know that God is a God who follows through on his covenant-keeping love. He will not back down, and we should be encouraged by that. So going ahead, as I tried to jump to earlier, and in Isaiah 9, 8, 10 through 4. See, the Lord sent a word against Jacob, and it will fall on Israel. And all the people will know Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, who say in pride and in arrogance of heart, the bricks have fallen, but we will build the dressed stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will put cedars in their place. The Lord raises the adversaries of resin against him and stirs up his enemies. The Syrians on the east and the Philistines on the west, devour Israel with open mouth. For all his anger had not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. What stands out to you in this passage? The invasion had come, they'd experienced it, but what? They had this attitude that, that's okay, we'll rebuild, right? We'll make it even better. Pride was here. Do we wrestle with pride? Anybody in this room wrestle with pride? That's a good example right there. <laughs> no hands. Um, the reality is God had warned Israel through his prophets repeatedly that judgment was coming because they had turned away from God, but the people did not repent and turn back to God in spite of these warnings. God's words were falling on deaf ears. <clears throat> the people had experienced God's judgment as God had now brought some significant acts of judgment on the people as the Syrians and the Philistines who had devoured Israel but still, Israel responded to God's warnings with what? It says with pride and arrogance of heart. So that whatever was destroyed, they would be able to rebuild better than before. Perhaps you remember the verse I think Lee shared last week, Psalm 20, verse 7. Some take pride in chariots and others in horses. We take pride in the name of the Lord our God. I think it's clear where the pride of these people was. They were trusting in their ability. <clears throat> but worse, they were missing the point. Have you ever spoken to someone and you feel like after 10, 15, 20 minutes of talking, you just feel like they've completely missed the point? That they're not understanding what you're trying to say? It's beyond translation issues. It's simply because of where their mind is, where their heart is. God was calling these people to turn to him, 
But we see that instead of turning away from their sin and toward God, which, what is repentance is, they were doing the very opposite. As it says, they did not turn to him. They did not seek the Lord. These men, uh, created by God, were living as though they were the creators. And as a result of their pride, God was bringing the terrifying Assyrians. Now, if you look on through 9, uh, 13 through 17, um, the people did not turn to him who struck them, nor inquire of the Lord of hosts. So the Lord cut off from Israel head and tail, palm branch and reed. And one day, the elder and honored man is the head, and the prophet who teaches lies is the tail. For those who guide his people have been leading them astray, and those who are guided by them are swallowed up. The people were clearly not humbling themselves before the Lord. And so what does he do? He cuts off the leaders who brought the nation into these sins to begin with. He removes the leaders and officials of the people. And he removes the prophets who were supposed to speak God's word to his people. Going on in 18 through 21, we see for wickedness burns like a fire, consumes briars and thorns. It kindles the thickets of the forest and they roll upward in a column of smoke. It's this picture of destruction. Though the wrath of the Lord of hosts, the land, through the wrath of the Lord of hosts, the land is scorched and the people are like fuel for the fire. No one spares another. They slice meat on the right, but are still hungry. They devour on the left, but still are not satisfied. Each devours the flesh of his arm. Manasseh devours Ephraim. Ephraim devours Manasseh. Together they are against Judah. For all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. We see this growing wickedness that's resulting in self-destruction. The reality is that sin does not stay small and manageable, does it? We try to hide it, have our own little sin. If I could just keep it right here, it'll be fine, right? It's more like a cancer that metastasizes and spreads throughout the body, growing and spreading until death. It's the sickness we read about, this wickedness we read about. It's like a fire that consumes the whole forest. And in other places in Scripture, we, talk, we read about the yeast that spreads through the whole batch. Self-destruction is the result of this wickedness. God will not allow it. And I think a picture of the, the doctor that has to do what has to be done to go in and do the invasive, sur invasive surgery that cuts away the cancer that is killing the person. God has to punish this wickedness. Can we get on to 10, 1 through 4? Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees and the writers who keep writing oppression to turn us Side the needy from justice and to rob the poor of my people of their right, that widows may be their spoil, and that they may make the fatherless their prey. What will you do on the day of punishment and the ruin that will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help and where will you leave your wealth? Nothing remains but to crouch among the prisoners or fall among the slain. For all this, his anger is not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. Fact is, these leaders were making crooked, unjust laws that stripped the poor and the needy, the widows, the orphans. This continued injustice inflamed the heart of the living God, moving him to bring judgment. They simply could not hide. They could not run. So we see these examples. We see this picture played out of, well, this is not a direct cross-reference to uh, the darkness mentioned in two, it is definitely caught up in that. And we see what it looks like to be among a dark nation, the pride 
of a people who have completely turned away from God, the, the wickedness of these people, and of course, um, the way that within that wickedness that they were taking advantage of even the poor and the needy. And, and as we saw in the second section, that, that the leaders and the prophets had very much a part in this and how they were leading the people. Um, what's the one thing we see commonly through here, though? Anybody happen to notice it says it four times? For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. Still, we see it in 9.12, we see it in 9.17, we see it in 9.21, and we see it in 10.4, correct? Over and over again, for all this, his anger has not turned away. His hand is stretched out still. While these people were living willingly in light of their unbelief, it did not change the fact that at the same time they were living in light of God's judgment. Have you known people who try to live their lives as if God is not real? Anybody know anyone who says God is not real? Someone who says that this thing about Christ being the only way, that's not true. It can't be true. Everybody will find their own way somehow. Just because we believe something, does that make it true? If Daniel came up here and said, hey, I had a vision. I really believe Jesus is coming back this afternoon at 3 p.m. Does that make it real? No, probably not. If uh, Dorsa came to me and said, I go outside the sky, it's really green. You'd look up and you say, yeah, it's blue. You know, no, it's green. Would, would Dorsa be right? Our quiet bunch today. Hopefully no, right? The reality is the sky is blue. Just because we, we believe something or we say does not, something does not exist, does, our saying it does not make it true. What is true is what makes it true. Not to confuse you too much there with using the same words. Truth is truth. And we have a world that right now wants to go around and say there is no such thing as absolute truth, right? It's offensive. Especially in Western culture, this is a very common idea that there is no absolute truth. What's the irony in that phrase? There is no absolute truth. Think about it. There is no absolute truth. What are they saying? They're making a truth claim, right? They're making an absolute truth claim that there is no absolute truth. So it's kind of an interesting thing how we, we choose to live out our lives in light of what we think is true. And the fact is, as we live in light of the kingdom, we live in light of who God is, who Christ is, what has happened, whether we want to confess it or whether we don't. The reality is it's still true and we live in light of it. But here's the thing. It's easy to read, as always, the Old Testament and see Israel, point fingers and see the darkness and say, man, we, we are not like that, right? Anybody here ever, you know, made a golden calf in their oven at home? Most of you probably don't have ovens because everybody eats out. But the reality is we are sinners as well. And it has nothing to do with us and how great we are that we are not mentioned here specifically in this passage. It has everything to do with who came that we read about in 9, 6. And so that when we read that question, there are really two questions. They should also burn in our heart, Isaiah 10, 3. What will you do on the day of punishment and the ruin that will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help? 
and where will you leave your wealth? The reality is the judgments described in this section are nothing compared to the eternal wrath of God poured out on sinners in hell. Unforgiven sinners will forever experience God's raised hand of wrath. So what are we to make of it? Will it ever turn away? Are we just as without hope as the people of Israel? Well, the magnificent good news is that over 2,000 years ago, hope came in our Savior, Jesus Christ, who dealt with God's anger on the cross so that those of us who would believe in him would no longer be condemned. So jumping back into 9, 1 through 7, fulfilling this promise that David's kingdom would be made sure forever and that a king would come from the line of David, a child would be born. And this son would reign on David's throne and over his kingdom. We see the promise in 1 Samuel 7, and we see the fulfillment of it in the genealogy of Christ in Matthew 1. But here's the thing. Even the great King David, who the Old Testament says God had promised him that, that one day one of his would sit on the throne forever. This same king, David himself, would be on his face before. As great of a king as David was, he will be on his face before his infinitely greater son, worshiping him for the rest of eternity with the redeemed. And who is this son that he will be worshiping, that we will be worshiping? We read about him in uh, verse 6, wonderful counselor. Now, if you have King James Version, I think it puts a comma between wonderful and counselor. Um, but it's right to be right there together without a comma. Wonderful counselor. The Son of God is and will be characterized by extraordinary wisdom. Isaiah 28, 29 says, He is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. Ephesians 1, 11 through 12, He works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. Romans 11, 33 through 34, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom of the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counsel? Psalm 32, 8. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. His wisdom, his counsel was not something just to observe at a distance. He also had promised that he will guide us. And one of the ways that he does that is through this. I challenge any person who ever says they're looking for God's will, God's direction in their life. Have you started here? And don't get me wrong. If you turn to page 372, it doesn't say, uh, go apply for this job. Or if you turn to page 732, this is how you bake a chocolate cake. It's, this word is sufficient to serve its purpose. And that is God's special revelation of what he has done through the ages, bringing us Christ and how we should live in light of him. He gives us his counsel through his word. The son of God will also be strong. No one can contend with him. How often are nations always looking to, whether they get to elect him, whether they get told they're electing him, but they're really not electing him, or rather they have no choice whatsoever. How often are people looking for a strong leader? How often do you see people look at this weakling over here, this weak guy and say, Man, I want him. The Son of God is, is 
cannot be contended with. He is a mighty God that is far beyond anything that we can even begin to imagine. And I think we need to go back just to get it straight. John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Who was in the beginning? Who was in the beginning? God. And he always is and always will be. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. That should humble us. And him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. He cannot be overcome. This is the mightiest son of God. Also Hebrews 1, 2 through 3. In the last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance, talking of Christ, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. We also read here, so we have wonderful counselor, mighty God. You're probably thinking the Handel Messiah theme, anybody who's familiar with music. Uh, and then we have everlasting father or eternal father. You remember in Isaiah 6 what happens? There was a king that died, right? Kind of kicked all this all off, right? It says, in the year that King Uzziah died, right? In 6-1, this king had reigned for about 52 years. Has anybody ever known a king to reign for that long over them? We come from a country where it's four years, get voted, maybe get total of eight years. 52 years is a long time. And also he started very young at the age 16. Um, and the reality was this nation was marked with prosperity, with success, Seemed to be a pretty good thing, but would it last forever? No, it wouldn't. One, because he's a man and, and we all die, right? Pretty, uh, there's a new science report. It's a one-to-one -one ratio. All of us who are born will die. There's no getting around it, no dodging it. Not even King Uzziah would dodge it. Um, but what really messed him up is as he grew strong, he became proud. And this was what came to his destruction. The son of God, his kingdom will be everlasting. The Son of God has life that will never end, so that means what? The kingdom will never end. As far as this term Father, don't think so much in terms of the Trinitarian Father, Son, Holy Spirit, but more in terms of the benevolent protector, which is the responsibility of an ideal king. So, so he's this eternal Father that is going to care for his kingdom in the way that it should be according to his character, which is really, really good. And then finally, the Prince of Peace, this is just an amazing thing to think about. When we look around the world, we look at what's happened in Russia and Ukraine. We look at our own economic situations. We look at um, political strife in various different countries. We see it all around us. And then we think that there is going to be peace at every level. I won't read it, but we recall Isaiah 11, the reference to the wolf dwelling with the lamb, the leopard lying with the young goat, the calf and the lion. We have this picture of, of this peace that we cannot even begin to imagine right now. But there is going to be peace. But ultimately, there is a peace that we know now, and we will know in a whole different light. But we read in Isaiah 53, 5, the Lamb, Jesus Christ, says he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace by his wounds, with his wounds, 
we are healed. And later, of course, we see Paul writing uh, to the Ephesians, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, has broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So all this darkness we see, all this continuing, ongoing movement away from everything that God had called them to. God was breaking that down. We see it in scripture. He says he's going to take that heart of stone and he's going to give them what? A heart of flesh. God was not just giving you a get out of hell free card. Anybody played Monopoly? Okay, just a few of you. God was not simply just helping people dodge the eternal damnation of hell. He was doing a work to restore what sin had destroyed redeeming his people for himself. And not only that, but we have this future picture that quite honestly, we just will not understand until it happens that God is restoring uh, this earth that has been affected uh, by sin. And guess what? This kingdom will reign forever. And remember Jesus' words to his disciples in John 14, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. And what is he going to say? Not as the world gives do I give to you. We look around. I tell you, often people talk about how they're looking for happiness. And I do think that there's, there's truth. Pascal has talked about how everyone is seeking happiness in some way. But I think there's also room in the conversation is that everyone is seeking peace on some level. And the fact is, as we read here, the Christ's kingdom, God's kingdom will be a perfect reflection of his own character. The perfectly righteous king who loves righteousness and hates wickedness will make sure that those attributes of his character will characterize his kingdom forever. Has anybody been discouraged by what's happening in their home country or the country they reside in? I know sometimes we're afraid to speak out, so that's why you haven't heard me mentioning a lot of different other governments and things like that, because I'm just going to stay away from that today. I think we all in our head know and can imagine what a broken government or what a government led by a broken man looks like. We can imagine it, right? Because it's out there. We're seeing it all the time. If you just open up your news app, it's there. But this kingdom, this kingdom will be characterized by who? Christ and his perfect character, his perfectly righteous character. And I think often we have problems with seeing this angry God of wrath and justice, right? Has anybody ever struggled with that? Has anybody ever struggled with this God that we see? Often we see it in Old Testament. And let me borrow you and warn you from ever reusing the phrases of God of the Old Testament, God of the New Testament. It's the same God. But we often in Old Testament see a perspective of God that New Testament does not always show. And we see this wrathful, angry, jealous side of God. That's, that's the God you want driving this kingdom because that's the God that's not going to allow perversion, corruption, sin, or any of these like things to enter into his kingdom, his government. So when we look around and we look at all the failed attempts to have a government on this earth that is good, we pause for a minute and we look at the government, uh, the kingdom that already is and is to come. And so we're going to see we're already seeing, but we will continue to see uh, because Isaiah kind of holds this, this tension of what he has already done and what is coming, what is happening. 
Gloom is giving way to the glorious way. Darkness is giving way to great light, we see in verse 2. Sorrow to joy. Oppression to liberation. All of these things are happening. And I love what the ESV Study Bible Commentary says here, that this is an empire of grace that will forever expand, and every moment will be better than the last. And to add to that, this is a leader who the closer you look, the better and better it gets. How often would we not be able to say that about earthly leaders? We see it right now in some of the, my own denomination in the U.S. There's an investigation report brought out about all these different leaders, Christian leaders. We've heard what's happened with Ravi Zechariah. And, and the closer and closer we get, often the more uncomfortable we become. But Christ, that's not true. The closer and closer we look at this king, the better and better and better it gets. I think about the digging with my children on the sandy shore, you know, whenever you're trying to dig a hole right next to the water at the beach and how it just kind of keeps filling, right? You can dig for 30 minutes and you look at the hole and it's the same size, right? Because the, the sand keeps filling in underneath. And the reality is when it comes to understanding God and the character of God, something we actually do not probably study as much as we should, the more we dig, the deeper we go, we will never plumb the bottom of the depths of what can be known of God, but we will grow in our worship and grow uh, in what it means uh, to know and follow God. So wrapping it up here, the fact that our lives are different as we live in light of this kingdom of God is a reality, right? When our eyes are open to look up on and experience the love behind the greatest rescue of all time, what Jesus Christ has accomplished upon that cross and the conquering of death and his resurrection, we are changed, we are transformed. Our hearts are transformed, our minds are transformed, our affections are transformed, our wills are transformed, our relationships are transformed, our purposes are transformed in light of who we have become in Christ. So when we, we read... Uh, Isaiah 9 today, there should be a sense of peace, understanding that the victory of Jesus Christ over sin and death is total and complete. There all should be, also should be a sense of longing, a sense of longing that Psalm 130 helps us to get out of waiting on the Lord. We know he has come, but we await his return. So how do we live in light of that? And I'm not going to sit here and give you another sermon on how to live in light of that. It's really not what I think that this text uh, is doing. I think it's giving us something different, but I think we can still look at this, and we see a people of Israel who are proud, who are wicked, who are people of injustice, right? Is that how we're to live in light of the kingdom? No. We must walk humbly, trusting in the Lord our God. What's Proverbs 3, 5 through say? Trust in the Lord your God with all your heart. Or so that's, I read to you before I try to do it differently. Well, that come up. But um, lean, not on your, lean not on your own understanding. Um, acknowledge him in all your ways, and he will make your path straight. Um, sorry, I have two translations going in my head at the same time with that verse. Um, we're also called to be holy, 1 Thessalonians 4.3. What does it say? This is God's will for you, your sanctification. Your sanctification. We're always looking for God's will in some other way, but God says his will for us is our holiness. In 1 Peter 1.16, he says, be holy for I am holy. And uh, Hebrews 12, 14 says, strive, pursue holiness 
for without this, no one will see the Lord. And then, of course, in light of what we see of people of injustice, we want to be people of good works. And that looks in two ways to me. I see Titus 3.14 that says, let our people learn to devote themselves to good works for pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. But I also think of the Great Commission because there are needs well beyond social, well beyond electricity bills and food. There are eternal needs that need to be met that only Christ can, can make. And so we need to be people of the Great Commission. And so with that said, we don't live a works-based faith, as we said, right? We live a grace-based faith. And I think that Paul Tripp helps us with this when he says, the life of faith is all about rest and work. We rest in God's presence and constant care. We toil with our hands, busy at the work we have been commanded to do. We rest in our work and we work in our rest. He has done the work and we live in light of that. Let's close in prayer. Um, I'm going to actually use a prayer that I um, read this morning. The Gospel Coalition uh, puts out um, these prayers daily with an app I use. And I just felt, man, this is just such a good prayer for us to close um, Isaiah um, with. Let's pray, and then we'll be done. We praise you, O God. We acknowledge you to be the Lord. All creation worships you, the Father everlasting. To you, all angels, cry aloud. All the powers of heaven, to you, cherubim and seraphim, sing in endless praise. Holy, 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 Lord God of hosts, heaven and earth are full of the majesty of your glory. The glorious company of apostles praise you. The fellowship of prophets praise you. The noble army of martyrs praise you. The holy church throughout the whole world acclaims you. Father of an infinite majesty, your true and only Son, worthy of all praise, and the Holy Spirit, the Comforter. You are the King of glory, O Christ. You are the everlasting Son of the Father. When you look upon yourself to deliver us, you did not disdain the virgin's womb. When you overcame the sting of death, you opened the kingdom of heaven to all believers. You are seated at God's right hand in glory. We believe that you will come to be our judge. Come then, Lord. And help your servants whom you have redeemed with your precious blood. Make us to be numbered with your saints in glory everlasting. O Lord, save your people. Bless your heritage. Govern them. Lift them up forever. Day by day, we magnify you. We worship your name forever. World without him. O Lord, keep us this day without sin. O Lord, have mercy upon us. Let your mercy rest upon us as our trust is in you. O Lord. And you have we trusted. Let us never be confounded. Amen.